1: I am Jeff Burns. I am the Chief of Critical Care at uh, Boston Children's Hospital and Professor of Anesthesia at Harvard Medical School. I do not um, organize this by myself. I'm helped by a great deal of colleagues from around the world, and uh, especially uh, my two editorial assistants and colleagues, uh, Megan Barrett and Susan Cordes. So it's a privilege to introduce to you Dr. Michael Minna, as you see here, uh, Dr. Minnis got a number of uh, affiliations, the Harvard School of Public Health, uh, the MIT Broad Institute, the Brigham and Women's Hospital, um, and Harvard Medical School. Um, Michael, welcome.
2: Thanks very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I guess we'll just get, get started. Uh, so I'm going to be speaking today about different testing strategies that we've been evaluating. I'm going to start out by giving us a very, very broad overview of the differences in testing modalities. Uh, but then I want to dive in briefly into some, some uh, newer analyses that we've been doing that I think can help to uh, curb outbreaks where they're, where they're hitting populations the hardest. Next slide. So first of all, why do we need um, surveillance testing? SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19—I I don't think I have to tell anyone on this call—is uh, not going away anytime soon. Uh, it only seems to be picking up speed in much of the world. And uh, so over here on the on the left, we see the cumulative cases that have occurred. This is as of maybe a week ago or so, and uh, and daily new cases are still continuing to increase. And we know that SARS-CoV-2 is a very very is likely to be um, uh, play by similar rules as its, as its closest neighbors, which are the other seasonal coronaviruses. They have very strong seasonality uh, associated with them. And what we can see uh, on the right side is if you average over multiple years, you end up seeing that uh, September, October, November, really in December end up seeing uh, large increases usually of seasonal coronaviruses. So uh, in the Northern Hemisphere, that is. And so we really have to be uh, careful, and we need to make sure that we have our surveillance system set up in a way that can, can not only just monitor what maybe is happening a couple of weeks ago, uh, uh, but we really need to, to have a very good understanding of what's happening right now and who are most infectious so that we can use surveillance as an actual tool uh, to stop outbreaks. Next slide. So there's uh, a few different approaches, but the two major sort of tests that we might think about doing for surveillance are virus testing. Uh, and serological antibody testing. I'm not going to talk too much about this serological or antibody testing, but I do want to point out that virus testing uh, is for the here and now usually. It tells you who is infected at this moment in time and can give you an opportunity to act uh, and respond appropriately through contact tracing or any of the other roles. Ser- serology, on the other hand, is a very powerful tool that I think has gotten, uh, unfortunately, has been a little bit neglected throughout this epidemic because we've been, in crisis mode, more or less throughout the whole of the epidemic. Uh, but w- during peacetime for broad surveillance of the population. Uh, antibody testing can be a very, very powerful tool and can actually and, and can serve to uh, highlight and detect outbreaks very quickly uh, when they are occurring from a public health perspective and then potentially allows you to, to move in with with virus testing when you detect an outbreak. So, th- this slide is really just to, 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 su- to suggest that serology shouldn't be neglected uh, uh, as, a, as, a, as a very powerful tool for public health, uh, in particular during peacetime, once in locations where the virus has largely subsided and, and long-term monitoring is needed. Uh, next slide. And this is just a, a one example to um, depict that. Uh, on, on the left is virus testing and on the right is antibody testing. What we can see is virus testing usually stays positive for a very limited amount of time when you actually have the virus in you. And, uh, and so therefore, it's not always as powerful a tool given a, a, a given amount of testing that might be happening uh, versus uh, antibody testing once somebody becomes positive. Uh, what I'm showing here is on the each row is a, an individual and each column you could think of as a, a week in time. And uh, what happens is after somebody does turn positive, they remain positive for for at least months usually and of course there's been a lot of discussion about exactly how long the time is during a primary infection for SARS-CoV-2 but on average it's going to be much longer than, than the virus remains positive positive. and so it, it can be a very powerful tool overall to to identify outbreaks which then you can move in and, and allocate resources appropriately to then stop those outbreaks uh, and, and so if there's other questions about this I'm happy to talk about them later. Uh, but there's some, some more pressing, uh, I think, uh, new avenues for surveillance that I want to get to right now. Uh, next slide. Uh, I'm sorry, I have, I have two slides here that I think illustrate um, really how, how virus testing and serology can be very useful and powerful. And this is just to point out, if you have a, po- a, a virus test, like a PCR test, and you're using it at a population level, it tells you the here and now, it tells you who's getting infected, Currently, but it doesn't really give you much information about the epidemic trajectory that you're facing at the moment in time. So this is an example, if let's say you're in a town and you find that 5% of people are are virus positive at that moment of time, you don't really know um, too much about what to make of that 5% positivity, except that you have an outbreak happening. But is it going up? Is it going down? It's a little bit difficult to know. Uh, Next slide, please. Uh, If you add serology into the mix, however, uh, just a cross-section of positivity with a virus plus a cross-section of antibodies will give you a very powerful idea of the trajectory that the virus might be taking. For example, if you add serology and you find that 55% of the population is antibody positive and 5% are bi- virus positive, you can have a pretty good understanding that the epidemic trajectory is on its way down. On the other hand, if you find that antibody positivity is only 5 or 6% uh, and uh, virus positivity is 5%, then you, that might be an area where you really want to allocate resources quickly to help mitigate uh, what could become a pretty big outbreak. Uh, and so this is just, uh, I, I do believe that that serological evaluation can provide a massive uh, amount of extra information and it's very cheap and so it can be scaled up uh, quite well. Uh, next slide. So I want to talk about surveillance characteristics and what are some of the trade-offs that we might need to make to, to really have surveillance that not only just gives some information to put on a website, but actually can serve in real time to stop transmission and curb outbreaks in a matter of weeks. Next slide. Uh, Surveillance test characteristics are usually, uh, these are three of the main main results that we might want in a test. We, of course, a lot of people think that we want a very highly sensitive test. We want to know who's virus positive uh, when when they're positive. And so usually this is perceived as a very high sensitivity of a PCR test to detect viral RNA. We want test results that are fast, and we want tests that are low cost, which can be done with very high frequency because the cost is low. The priority order that we normally place is in is usually sensitivity number one, I'd say. Uh, And then cost and uh, and apparently speed to get results has been way lagging in terms of our, our priorities in this country with many results getting to people weeks Uh, after they've been tested, which uh, frankly, I think, makes these tests essentially useless uh, if you're finding out your results seven days or more afterwards. Uh, Next next slide. And so is this the correct order? A a fast test that can return results in minutes that is sensitive uh, uh, but is expensive would be great. But if it's too expensive, you're not going to be able to scale it up very well. You're not going to be able to get everyone tested uh, in the country. But what about a test that gives you very fast results, is very inexpensive, uh, uh, but is 100 times less sensitive, or maybe even 1,000 times less sensitive uh, than than the PCR test? Is this okay? Is this a good trade-off? Most people would think no, but I'm hoping to suggest that there is actually a very reasonable argument to be made that cheap, fast tests that are less sensitive, potentially, are very powerful. Next slide. Uh, And, of course, this is uh, important right now because I believe that these tests can be available today. I don't just believe it, I know it. Um, But there are important um, barriers in the way at the moment. Uh, Next slide. So to understand why I'm saying that test sensitivity can be uh, reduced uh, if you have a trade-off of frequency, I want to show this slide. And we have to look at the biology of this virus and how it grows inside of our bodies. Uh, Once somebody on the x-axis, I have days since infection, And on the y-axis I have viral load that might be in the body. And what I want to point out is once this virus, once somebody becomes, there's an incubation period, once somebody becomes positive on the PCR test, it's only a matter of hours usually as the the virus is in in exponential growth, it's increasing very, very quickly, and it will surpass thresholds of low sensitivity tests very quickly, uh, usually within hours, maybe within a day. And this is important because it's not really until the virus gets to very high copy numbers that it actually starts transmitting to people. So do we need to necessarily worry about having such a high sensitivity test that we can detect 10 viral RNA copies, or is detecting 100, 1,000, or 10,000 RNA copies as the limit of detection an okay trade-off if it means that you could have a daily test uh, every single day and I think that what that, would, what, what that would ultimately do is it would allow you to detect when people are transmitting in time to, to stop them from going out of their house that morning, for example, stop the transmission. And what's very important here is that most, uh, when we evaluate these tests and we say they're lower sensitivity, it's very important to know what, what our targets are and what it means. When we test these at a, at a, with a given sample of specimens on a given day, and we say that cheap tests or, or, or antigen tests are less sensitive, it's very important to understand that almost all of the samples that are being missed as positive are in this yellow period here. It's oftentimes weeks after the infection has stopped transmitting and, uh, in this, and the RNA just lingers in the nasopharynx for a very long period of time. Meanwhile, the antigens are gone, the proteins have unfolded. And you just have residual RNA sticking around in double-walled vesicles inside of our cells for a long period of time, detectable on the PCR but meaningless from an action perspective and, frankly, meaningless from a risk of of severe disease perspective because you've already gone past the most crucial uh, period of time in terms of of severe infections. And so uh, we did some modeling based on this kinetics to understand what would it mean if we introduced a daily or an every two day or three day um, low sensitivity at the molecular level test, uh, and what I'm trying to get at is, can we change our view from molecular sensitivity to our sensitivity to detect infectious people? And I think we just need to change the target for what we define as a sensitive, appropriately sensitive test. Next slide, please. So we modeled this out using both agent-based models and uh, and um, more SIR ecological models that are uh, a little bit more simple to deploy. But in both cases, we found nearly identical results. Uh, and ultimately, what I'm showing on the left here is what fraction of the infectiousness is removed given different types of tests. And in the pink bars are, are the current PCR type of tests. And in the, in the darker bars are what I would call low sensitivity um, transmission detection tests. And what we can see is in both cases, the most important thing by far is the frequency of testing. Uh, Outside of frequency, there's almost no difference on the left between the high sensitivity test and a a test that's 100 times less molecularly sensitive than the PCR test. Uh, And it really comes down to how frequently can we uh, uh, test people. And if we're doing testing daily or every three days, we more or less abrogate all or stop all infectious uh, individuals from being out in the population uh, at any given time we drive r not way down, or the effect of R. And on the right side, we see the total number of infections compared to no testing. Uh, And frankly, I would say that at the moment, we pretty much have a situation where we have the equivalent of no testing in the United States anyway. Uh, And daily or every three tests with either sensitivity test, uh, if not even weekly of most people, would drive down infections. And this suggests that frequency of testing is much more important than the sensitivity than the molecular then the ability of the test to detect molecules. Uh, next slide. Uh, and not only is it the frequency of testing, but it's also the turnaround uh, time for tests. Now, at the time when we wrote this, we didn't even consider making a turnaround time of, uh, of a week or two weeks, which is really what we have now in, in many cases in the States. Uh, but we have for each of these different testing frequencies, we have uh, zero means uh, rapid turnaround time in minutes. One or two is one-day delay and two-day delays. And we can see that relative to the rapid tests, uh, even just having a 24-hour delay and definitely having a 48-hour delay, uh, for example, if your frequency is every three days, uh, greatly reduces your ability to decrease infections at the population level. So the best uh, test, regardless of sensitivity, would be one that can be frequent, can give rapid results, and uh, because This is a virus that inside the body grows across many orders of magnitude. Potentially, you get infected and you have a viral load of 10. You end up transmitting when you have a viral load of a million or or a billion or trillion sometimes we can detect in people. So uh, this this really suggests that when we're trying to understand sensitivity, our targets are the wrong thing. Uh, I don't think we should care if we can find 10 RNA molecules in somebody. We should care if we can find a million. Uh, and and stop it right there at the source.
1: So, Michael, could I um, just jump in to make sure I'm following you. The gold standard uh, PCR limit of detection is roughly 10 to the third. Yeah, depending on what units. But yeah, you could say 10 to the third. Yep. And um, the people on the chat are asking, does that, uh, what does that correlate to on a CT value? About 40. And, um, and your argument is that the limit of detection for a point of care test or a self-administered test, which is cheaper, faster, less sensitive, is at maybe 10 to the fifth?
2: Yeah, 10 to the fifth, maybe 10 to the sixth, even per mil, or a CT value maybe around 30 to 34.
1: And then the threshold for infectivity?
2: Probably much lower. Um, probably a lot lower, especially if we consider who are the likely superspreaders, which are really the, the best, the most important people to find. It's probably a, a threshold. So we know that at a CT value above 30, 32, 34, we can't even detect, a, we can't even culture the virus out of somebody with that. So it suggests that it's all just RNA with no virions. Uh, but there's even been some papers, I think, in Nature Medicine that showed uh, that above a 24 CT value, there was no culturable virus. So it really suggests that you probably have to have, my guess, is somewhere in the, in the teens or below and up to the, maybe the mid-20s of CT values would be the most likely time when somebody would be transmitting. And we don't, this isn't actually, in my opinion, it's not a difficult question to answer. We actually have it if we just take two different data sets. We know what period of time people are transmissible, which is usually day minus two to day four or five after symptom onset. Uh, By the time you're day 10 after symptom onset, even the CDC says you can go back out into the world. Uh, So it's usually this small window of time. And if you look at the CT values of people from day minus two to day five, it's usually very high, somewhere in the teens to low 20s. So so I would suggest that it's much higher viral loads when people are most likely to be transmitting.
1: And so a reminder to the audience that, that the viral load increases as the CT value decreases. That's right. Um, and uh, one last question for you, and then not, not to slow you down. The, um, the time from uh, going from uh, 10 to the third to 10 to the fifth to 10 to the sixth is, is a measure of a day, approximately, or a measure of several days? That's correct. Can,
2: um, if we can go back a few slides to that graph of the kinetics, I'll just, I'll just point that yeah, this one. So what I've highlighted in red here is that duration of time. And it's probably on the order of a day when you really, you pass through multiple orders of magnitude. By the time you become PCR positive, the virus is in what we might think of as deterministic exponential growth upwards. And so it grows very fast, just like in a petri dish, and it can grow over multiple orders of magnitude in just a day. And so I would suggest that it's a very short, there's very, very few people that actually would get tested in that very short amount of time. And most people who are getting tested with our current surveillance system are out in the yellow time period there. And it's a very long, drawn-out period of RNA positivity.
1: Uh, Thank you. So please, uh, please uh, catch up. I just wanted to make sure I was following you. Sure. Uh, Next slide, please.
2: So uh, I just want to conclude. And and I'm going to have a few more discussion points. But virus, uh, I think that both serology and virus testing are extremely important. Uh, and work well together, like I showed in the first couple of slides, but in order to rapidly detect and prevent outbreaks in a period of time that is useful to actually tell somebody that they need to stay home, uh, our results say it's more than okay to sacrifice molecular sensitivity for speed and low cost or high frequency testing. And, uh, and I would suggest that this means that we need to change. We, it's a pretty simple solution. We just change our target when we're evaluating what it means to be sensitive. Just detecting somebody who's PCR positive, I think, in many ways, you could think of as usually a false positive. It's potentially weeks after somebody's cleared the virus, for the most part. They're no longer transmitting and they just continue to have a positive. I'll show a a little bit of evidence for that. Uh, But I do really think that it's time that we change our priorities uh, from cost uh, to to make cost and frequency of test number one and speed to get results should be within minutes and not days and definitely not uh, within weeks. We may as well Any any lab that's giving back results in a week, I think we should just stop those tests and and start to reset everything. There's no point to give tests back a week later. Uh, And and number three, I think, should be the molecular sensitivity, uh, with the first two essentially driving the the notion that we want sensitivity to detect infectious people, not sensitivity just to detect 10 or 1,000 RNA
1: copies and these would be saliva-based tests that you could do, uh, be self-administered, be at home, not technically complex, saliva into uh, some reagent. What's the cost?
2: Yeah, so I'll, I'll, if you go to the next slide here, I think I show that, um, uh, oh sorry, I don't show, but you can, I think that these things can be uh, about a dollar or so. I think it's in two slides and then I'm pretty much done, but on the next slide, I just want to point out, and we've now discussed it, but why don't we have all of these rapid tests today? They can be, they can exist for about a dollar, two bucks at a time. I think the federal government could be making these printing millions of them if they took control of the situation. Uh, and, uh, but, but we currently the, there was a lot of fanfare just a couple of days ago because the FDA posted a new template for at home over the counter tests. I think it does very little to get us where we need to go. It does open the door to say they're open to it. But ultimately, it still requires 90% molecular sensitivity against a representative sample set. So if we were to take what the, what the FDA considers as a representative sample set and try to measure the, the sensitivity of any of these tests right now, we would, we would miss all of these. You know, The sensitivity would look terrible. Um, but that's because currently our, our CT values, our viral loads from people during surveillance is really very low. So we have to, we're just looking at the wrong target. Uh, next slide. Uh, and so this is really what I think we need to go to. Right now, even with the, the new FDA reports and the RADx program and things like that, uh, I think what will get approved are going to be like the Nespresso model of of, uh, of virus testing. These are going to be very sensitive, sleek, very good tests, but they're going to still be expensive. They're going to be highly manufactured and not really approachable to get to everyone in the country. They're going to require, the FDA is requiring that every negative result as well as positive has some way to get reported to the uh, to the public health agencies, so we're going to end up bottlenecking ourselves into what they call rapid diagnostic at home tests. But what I want is a I don't want an espresso. I just want something that's cheap enough that can get caffeine into everyone every day. You know, and this would be uh, a daily at home paper strip that would that w- you're seeing a picture of what they might look like. They might sit into like little plastic a, a little plastic container or something. You spit into it swirl it around and it gives you a a positive or negative. But it's cheap, it's not connected to any Department of Health website, it's just paper. And that, I think, if we can get these out to the whole community, to millions and millions of people to use daily, which is reasonable to assume we could, it could actually stop outbreaks that are happening in Texas and Florida and Arizona overnight. I mean, practically within a week, I think we could drive the R-naught way down below one. I think this is my last slide.
1: Uh, maybe, uh, next, Michael, um, uh, we. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry to say that we don't have a whole lot more time. Um, as I told you, uh, many people wrote me beforehand, and as you know, uh, there are representatives from the WHO, the NIH, uh, and the US and European CDC listening now. Um, your argument uh, certainly makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I've also seen you mention that we have excellent contract tracing in Massachusetts, but. But because we're relying on the PCR test, uh, your argument is that they're not nearly as, as efficient um, as a public health measure as they could be with this kind of um, uh, approach. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, in fact, I mean,
2: just looking at those CT values that we get from Massachusetts alone, it suggests to us that the vast majority of positive, of positive results that we are, are detecting are probably weeks after, uh, after infectivity has stopped. So we're putting all of these contact tracing resources into tracking down people and saying, look, the last 48 hours after their sample was collected, but in reality, they were probably infectious one or two weeks before their sample was collected. So we're just wasting contact tracing effort for the most part. And and that's why I would also suggest that short of these types of tests, we should really be using the CT values of the tests uh, as a very strong indicator of who should get contact traced and what's the level of infectivity somebody might be at.
1: Well, the implications for uh, opening school um, and the implications for really for uh, what Andrew Argent was referring to of of a a better uh, ability to suppress the virus until there's a vaccine, um, you make a very uh, provocative argument. um, And we look forward to seeing the um, publication of the data that you presented, which I understand is, um, I know I saw on the preprint server, uh, and I suspect is um, under review somewhere. So we look forward to seeing the publication of these data. And um, Michael, I I thank you very much. I harassed you during your vacation and uh, thank you for uh, joining us tonight and I hope we can have you back in the future when we have a little more time. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. It's been almost uh, 15 weeks uh, since we've heard from our experts in pediatric infectious disease and uh, we're delighted to have them back tonight to update us on the literature. As you see there, we have uh, five international representatives Dr. Katie Chiodas from uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, uh, Dr. Donna from the University of Padua, uh, Julie Fitzgerald from Children's Hospital in Philadelphia, Dr. Liu from uh, Beijing Children's Hospital and Dr. Mary Nakamura from Boston Children's Hospital. Uh, Drs. Chiodas uh, Fitzgerald and Makanura were the um, authors of the Pediatric um, Society of Infectious Disease Guidelines on Antiviral Therapies and they're here to update us on the literature. Uh, So, Katie, um, I believe I'm turning this over to you. Next slide.
3: Hi, this is Mari. I'm going to actually start us off and then uh, Katie will take over next. Uh, Thank you very much, Jeff, for this opportunity to speak again. Uh, We, uh, next slide, please. We would like to start with some disclaimers, so we will be discussing current evidence based therapies for management of pediatric COVID-19 patients, but we will not be getting into MISC in this presentation. We've included therapies for which there is evidence for or evidence against the proposed therapy, but we've excluded those for which the evidence base is severely limited. The following presentation is based on our expert consensus opinion. Much of the available evidence is preliminary, and all of it is from adult subjects. So, generalizability to other patient populations and settings should be assessed. Next slide, please. To start us off, we wanted to provide some context by briefly summarizing recommendations from guidelines, representative guidelines from our respective countries. First of all, the Chinese guidelines are are recommending in favor of glucocorticoids in severe cases, as well as immunoglobulins in severe cases, and uh, traditional Chinese medicine. The guidelines are neutral on interferon alpha nebulization or interferon alpha 2b spray, as well as on the antivirals arbidol and lopinavir/ritonavir. They are against uh, use of antibacterials unless there is an indication. Next slide. The Italian guidelines are in favor of remdesivir for patients who have severe illness, which is uh, defined in the box below, as well as uh, dexamethasone for patients who have ARDS, or progressive deterioration of respiratory function, or for multi-system inflammatory syndrome. They're neutral on remdesivir for mild or moderate COVID-19, as well as IL-1 blockade, IL-6 blockade, and convalescent plasma. And they recommend against use of hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine with or without as lopinavir, ritonavir, or steroids in patients who are not requiring oxygen unless there is another indication for their use. Next slide. The U.S. NIH treatment guidelines are fairly similar to the Italian ones, but with some uh, interesting differences. So they are similarly in favor of remdesivir for patients on supplemental oxygen and uh, dexamethasone for patients who either require oxygen or mechanical ventilation. Um, They note that hospitalized adults should receive VTE prophylaxis per standard of care. The NIH guidelines are neutral on remdesivir for mild or moderate COVID-19, uh, but are actually also neutral for patients on the more severe end of disease, so those who have, require high flow oxygen, non-invasive or invasive ventilation, or ECMO, uh, because of uh, insufficient data. They are um, similarly neutral on convalescent plasma, IL-1 blockade and IL-6 blockade, and then thrombolytics, or full-dose anticoagulation for VTE prophylaxis. Uh, the NIH guidelines recommend. recommended against hydroxychloroquine with or without azithromycin or chloroquine, lopinavir ritonavir, or other HIV protease inhibitors, dexamethasone for patients who don't require supplemental oxygen, and JAK inhibitors. Next slide. I'll take it from here, this is Katie.
4: Um, so to evaluate the various evidence-based COVID-19 therapies for children, we came to the following framework which considers the published data, other published guidelines, as Mari highlighted, and collective expert opinion. The strongest recommendation is to recommend or recommend against, which essentially establishes the therapy as a standard of care. The next tier in our framework is to suggest, again, in favor or against, which means that the group assesss that there's a sufficient evidence base waiting towards or away from a benefit of the therapy. Finally, in the middle, which unfortunately is where many of our recommendations lie, is a recommendation to consider a therapy, which reflects the uncertainty as to whether or not there's benefit of the therapy. Within this category, we've additionally um, indicated therapies that should be considered, meaning that based on what we know now, most would accept that the benefits outweigh the potential harms. And therapies that could be considered are those that really different choices may be appropriate in different scenarios and based on individual values and preferences on both the provider and patient side. Next slide. Here we've summarized the therapies we reviewed today, ranked using this framework. Um, In the following uh, minutes of our presentation, we'll step through an evidence summary for each and provide a summary of our recommendation for each of these therapies, which this slide summarizes. I'll also mention that the Journal of the Pediatric Infectious Diseases Society will soon be publishing an update to our original guidance document related to antivirals and an additional document that summarizes uh, immunomodulatory therapy as well as convalescent plasma that highlights um, the literature supporting uh, these various recommendations. Next slide. I'll start by discussing antivirals and starting with remdesivir. The first study I'd like to highlight is the Adaptive COVID-19 Treatment Trial, or ACT, which is an NIH-funded study that was recently published in the New England Journal, and forms the basis of many of the recommendations surrounding the use of remdesivir. This randomized trial evaluated the impact of 10 days of remdesivir therapy on a primary outcome of time to recovery on an ordinal scale, which is reproduced on the right of the slide, essentially hospital discharge or ongoing hospitalization without medical need. Next slide. The key finding from this trial was that there was a reduction in time to clinical recovery in those patients who were treated with remdesivir, 11 days versus 15 days in placebo treated patients. The other key takeaway is shown in the three figures, which summarize data from the overall cohort on the far left with the subgroup just requiring supplemental oxygen at the center and those recovering mechanical ventilation or ECMO on the right. So as you can see, the overall positive findings in the trial in favor of remdesivir um, seem driven largely by the subgroup on supplemental oxygen, where benefit was evident, with really no difference in time to clinical recovery uh, in the cohort on mechanical ventilation or ECMO. Though we do need to be cautious in our interpretation of these uh, subgroup analyses, reminding ourselves that definitive conclusions shouldn't be drawn based on these type type of analyses. Before um, presenting our recommendations for remdesivir, I'll also very briefly highlight an additional key study, and that is the work of Goldman and colleagues who compared five versus 10 days of remdesivir in an open-label randomized trial of hospitalized patients with severe COVID-19 disease, those on supplemental oxygen. And Demarin stated no difference in clinical status as measured on a similar ordinal scale at day 14 following randomization with either duration of therapy. Next slide. So for children, I've summarized our key recommendations here. Uh, So for patients with severe disease, we recommend that uh, remdesivir should be considered uh, given the adult data supporting a benefit on time to recovery in this uh, illness severity. The second bullet point for those uh, critically ill children, that is patients on invasive or non-invasive mechanical ventilation, our consensus was also that clinicians should consider remdesivir. We do acknowledge that this population did not demonstrate significant benefit in ACT and also that the NIH guidance issues a neutral recommendation for critically ill populations. But we did feel that should consider was the most appropriate recommendation, given the extreme illness severity, the overall ACT findings, and uncertainty of how the differences between adult and pediatric um, illness severity and natural history of disease um, allow us to apply the adult data to our pediatric cohorts. Finally, our group favored administration of up to five days of remdesivir therapy for most children, with the option to extend to 10 days in mechanically ventilated patients. And I want to emphasize the up to, as if the child is better in approaching discharge or significantly clinically improved, or you determine that there's another reason for their symptoms, people shouldn't feel compelled to treat the quote-unquote full five to 10 days, as the benefits of remdesivir are really very, very uncertain in kids, and the harms, cost, and availability are real issues. Next slide. I wanna move through the next two slides um, pretty quickly as I believe that the scientific and medical communities have come to consensus that these next two therapies are unfortunately not effective in treating COVID-19 based on the data we have available to us. In the case of hydroxychloroquine, there have now been multiple randomized trials in hospitalized patients, uh, as well as for post-exposure prophylaxis now, evaluating the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine with and without azithromycin, with no benefit in mortality, clinical outcomes, or virologic uh, clearance demonstrated, including the recently uh, published uh, recovery trial, or or recently released uh, recovery trial, um, which is a very large randomized trial performed in the UK. Several observational studies, which are a variable methodologic quality, admittedly, also support these findings. Therefore, we suggest against use of hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine with or without azithromycin outside of a trial. Next slide. Finally, I'll highlight the two largest randomized trials that have evaluated uh, the use of lopinavir/ritonavir for the treatment of, of COVID-19, and both have demonstrated no significant difference in mortality or virologic outcomes, leading our group to suggest
3: against its use. Next slide. I will take us through a review of the evidence for steroids as well as convalescent plasma. We suggest that corticosteroids should be considered for children who require mechanical ventilation and that they could be considered for those who require supplemental oxygen. Based on the lack of evidence of efficacy, we suggest against use for children with no need for supplemental oxygen. Next slide. The key evidence on steroids come from the recovery trial, which Katie just mentioned. In the trial, about 2,100 adults received IV dexamethasone for up to 10 days, and plus usual care, and were compared with 4,300 control subjects who received usual care only. The study findings were that uh, for all patients overall that the risk of 28 day mortality was significantly lower among patients who received dexamethasone. The risk of mortality was also lower for those who required oxygen or invasive mechanical ventilation, but there was no difference observed for those who did not need oxygen. Next slide. Our consensus on convalescent plasma is that it could be considered for children with severe or critical COVID-19. Next slide. Our best data on convalescent plasma come from a single trial. It was a randomized controlled open label trial conducted at seven centers in Wuhan between February 14th and April 1st. In it, 52 adults who received convalescent plasma plus standard treatment were compared with 51 controls who received standard treatment only. Notably, due to lack of eligible patients after March 27th, the study was closed early with only 103 of the intended 200 subjects enrolled. Next slide. Overall, it was found that there was no difference in the primary outcome of time to clinical improvement. A subgroup analysis was performed by disease severity that suggested, as shown in the middle panel, a possible benefit in severe disease, but a test for interaction by disease severity was not statistically significant, and so the investigators cautioned about drawing firm conclusions about that result. Subjects who received convalescent plasma did have significantly higher rates of conversion to negative SARS-CoV-2 PCRs at 24, 48, and 72 hours of evaluation. Next slide. I'm not going to cover this slide in detail, um, but we've included more information for those who would like to refer back later. Uh, The best evidence we have about the safety of convalescent plasma comes from an evaluation of convalescent plasma transfusion in 5,000 adults who were enrolled in the US FDA's expanded access program. The evaluation showed that overall the rate of adverse events was very low. So just 36 were reported uh, within four hours of transfusion for an incidence of less than 1%. Next slide.
5: I'll be covering immunomodulatory therapy and anticoagulation recommendations. As with the other therapeutics that um, we've discussed so far, there are currently no immunomodulatory therapies with proven efficacy for treatment of COVID-19 in children. Our recommendation is that immunomodulatory therapies, and more specifically IL-6 blockade and IL-1 blockade, could be considered in children with confirmed critical COVID-19, who also have some evidence of hyperinflammation. In this situation, Consultation with subspecialists who are familiar with prescribing these therapies and who understand the side effect profiles of these therapies is recommended. I also want to extend a word of caution as all of the peer reviewed data that exists on these therapies in the setting of COVID-19 come from adult observational studies and thus they are subject to uh, limitations in the potential bias of this type of study. I'll provide a brief update on the new evidence for immunomodulatory therapy in adults that has been published since the last time we spoke at this um, forum. Next slide, please. As I've previously presented, we know that there can be mild to moderate elevations of IL-6 in both adult and pediatric patients with COVID-19. These elevations have been shown to correlate with di- disease severity and mortality, but may be orders of magnitude lower than those seen in other uh, hyperinflammation syndromes such as HLH or the cytokine release syndrome that, that is related to the T-cell therapy. Additionally, IL-6 is known to increase the risk of secondary infections. At the bottom of this slide, I included data from two separate adult retrospective cohort studies evaluating tocilizumab, an IL-6 receptor antagonist in COVID-19. The first study was performed in mechanically ventilated adults and the second in hospitalized adults with COVID-19 pneumonia. Both studies showed a lower, um, statistically significant lower hazard of death, but um, both showed higher rates of secondary infection with tocilizumab therapy. Next slide. Preliminary results of an industry-sponsored phase 2, 3 clinical trial in the U.S. for cerilumab, which is also an IL-6 receptor antagonist, were released by the sponsors. And this is preliminary data, which is encouraging um, in the patients with the critical um, category of COVID-19, but not in the severe COVID-19 group. Uh, the three treatment groups, uh, placebo, low- and high-dose cerilumab, are shown in the column headers. The second red box highlights that there was lower mortality in the critical patients receiving the higher dose, And the bottom box, uh, the bottom red box that I've highlighted uh, shows that there's a higher discharge rate in the group that received the higher dose of cerulamab. Based on these results and the opposite trends that were seen in the severe patients, the company has announced plans to continue with the phase three trial only in the critical subgroup. We would still advise caution, however, as these are preliminary data from adult patients and the trial is not complete and has not been peer reviewed yet. Next slide, please. IL-1 blockade is also being explored, and I present here data from two adult observational cohort studies, both of which used historical controls receiving usual care. Anakinra is an IL-1 receptor antagonist, and the short half-life and the safety profile are favorable aspects of this therapy. The data are not as um, strong or abundant for IL-1 blockade as it is for IL-6 blockade, but the familiarity with this drug and the safety profile um, lead us to provide the same conclusion that it could be considered. Uh, Both studies here, adult studies, showed a lower hazard of death, and there was no difference in side effects in those treated with anakinra in these uh, studies. Next slide. I included this slide as a reference for the audience to provide some early data on some other immunomodulatory uh, therapies that are under investigation in COVID-19, but the data for these therapies are really too limited to provide recommendations for these therapies uh, outside of the setting of a clinical trial. Next slide. Next slide. Finally, we wanted to spend a moment on anticoagulation. The hypercoagulable state has been well described in COVID-19 with characteristic lab abnormalities and multiple putative mechanisms. Existing data support a lower mortality in adults with elevated D-dimer who receive prophylaxis for VTE, but no data exists currently to uh, support using full-dose anticoagulation as as prophylaxis for VTE. Included in this, the highlights of the NIH guidelines regarding anticoagulation. I think that the main points to take home from this table are that according to the NIH, The diagnosis of COVID-19 should not change our usual standard of care for VTE prophylaxis in hospitalized children. And to draw your attention to the last bullet point, that when caring for patients who are rapidly deteriorating, particularly in pulmonary, cardiac, or neurologic status, the possibility of thromboembolic disease that could be treated as a cause for this deterioration should be investigated rapidly. Next slide. Thank you for the opportunity for uh, us to update our findings and to speak with, uh, with the group today.
1: Thank you all um, for that wonderful overview.
0: This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.